All right. We, um, I want to provide some review to kind of bring, some, bring you along in case you've missed things. And so some of it's repeat, some of it's new, and I want to focus first on the historical context. Some of this information I, I don't think I've I shared in the intro. Some of it I did to the, to the letter. But it's important. It's important. We always talk about context. That's the context of the letter, what's being said, what's being said before it, after it, uh, what is Paul trying to get at or the author trying to get at, not ripping things out of their context. But there's also, in any letter that's written, a historical context. There are circumstances that are impacting what he's saying, and will help us rightly understand what he's getting at or what he's communicating when he's writing these things. And so let me give you some historical context. Approximately 100 years prior, 100 years prior to the writing of this letter to the church in Philippi, after what is known as the battle at Philippi, the battle at Philippi, the city of Philippi effectively became a miniature Rome, a miniature Rome. That's how uh, historians refer to it. It became a miniature Rome as a number of veterans of the Roman conquering Roman military and other Italians were made to settle there in that city and being given the status of Roman colony, which was a prized status, the citizens of Philippi were then granted the privileges and rights of Roman citizens. And the city adopted the ways of Rome. From its law to its language, Latin became the official language in a, in a Greek culture, in a Greek-speaking group, uh, to its structures to its structures, special buildings similar to those found in Rome were constructed in Philippi, like bathhouses and forums, and to its worship, to its worship. The construction of buildings included in Philippi impressive and numerous altars and temples dedicated to the worship of the emperor of Rome and his family. This worship is referred to as the imperial, I'm sorry, the imperial cult. The imperial cult. That is the religion of Rome where they regarded the emperors and members even of their families as gods, small g, as gods, and worthy and demanding of worship. Worship. Speaking of Philippi, one commentator says, like Rome, the city's religious life centered on the worship of the emperor. Withdrawal, withdrawal from participation in the imperial cult was viewed as subversive activity. Subversive activity, what is that? Subversive activity is the activity of rebels 
or revolutionaries. In other words, if you withdrew from the imperial cult, the worship of, which was all around taking place on a regular basis, of the emperor as the divine or as a divine, that was seen as being revolutionary, being subversive to or disloyal to the mighty Roman Empire. Pretty serious. Pretty serious. Now, this certainly isn't... uh, We need to know this as we read it, because it'll come into play here, even today, as we look at this. But um, you basically had a group of people that were expressing, in one way or another, Caesar is Lord. And then you have another group of people, (laughs) Christian, who are expressing in one way or another, no, Jesus is Lord. And there's only one. So you could see the conflict, the problem that could arise from such a situation. And we don't, we don't experience this exactly, at least here in the U.S. of A. There are places, there are places that do experience this type of reality, even now. But we don't, as of yet, experience such things. But we need to understand what they were going through and what was causing their suffering. And about, as I continue, about 10 years prior now, so 90 years later after the Battle of Philippi, but 10 years prior to the writing of this letter, Paul went to Philippi and planted a church there. Okay? He went to that Roman colony, that Caesar-worshipping colony, and he planted a church there. And let me remind you that he faced serious opposition while he was there. Right? So at the very beginning of this church plant, it did not go out, it did not occur without problems, serious problems. After casting a demon out of a slave girl who for the profit of her owners was fortune-telling, the owners seized Paul and his gospel ministry partner Silas and dragged them, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers in Philippi. And then we read this in Acts 16. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. And then this is what, the next verse is what gets everyone really riled up. Because you don't do this. You don't go against Rome in any way. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Yeah, like Jesus alone is Lord and to him alone is due your worship and you cannot worship both Caesar as Lord and Jesus. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many, catch all the words, don't miss them, many blows upon them, 
they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Judaism, this is a side note, it's a side note. Judaism, I probably don't have time for it, but I, I'll try. Uh, Judaism, the Jewish religion at the time, uh, could be or was tolerated by Rome. Tolerated. Okay? Rome was pagan. And so the Greeks were pagan too. And so when Rome conquered, it was fine. You're all pagan. And now you Greek pagans just have to add one more deity to your list of deities, the emperor. <laughs> all right? So they're fine. Just another god to worship. But yes, we'll call Caesar Lord as well. Okay? Judaism or the Jewish faith, they knew there was only one true God, but, but they avoided and despised the Gentiles, generally speaking. So they, they stayed to themselves. There were Gentiles who embraced the God of Israel, but it wasn't if, as if there were campaigns by the Jewish people to go out and bring all the Gentiles to the God of Israel. It was more, uh, yeah, you want to know about our God, then become a Jew. You want to be a part of our thing, you have to, you know, get circumcised, and then you can be a God-fearer. You can fear the same God we fear. But there wasn't a campaign to go and tell. It was more of a come and see. So Judaism could be tolerated within the Roman Empire because they weren't stirring up trouble. And, and when they did, when things did get out of hand, you know, Rome would come in, if something did get out of hand, and they'd stamp it out pretty quick. So, so the Jews were, they're careful about all that they did. But along comes Christianity, which flows out of the Jewish faith. It's the God of the Israel who has now sent his son, Christ. And Christ says, what? What's his command? Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. This is a go-and-tell faith. Make me known to all nations, all peoples, because all can be saved by Christ, and the salvation he has accomplished is for all peoples. No one is outside. All sorts of nasty, icky Gentiles, as the Jews saw. So here you go. They're going and telling. They're making him known. And what they're making known runs entirely counter to Rome's religion. Because they claim there is only one Lord and his name is Jesus. Do you see so things are beginning to heat up or begin to heat up very quickly and there was persecutions. Now Paul and Silas were, they were released from that imprisonment in Philippi. And if you know the story, it's awesome because the jailer himself, because of Paul's continued witness here while he's in Philippi, witnessing, of Christ, witnessing to Christ, making him known, the jailer and his family all get saved and baptized that very night. 
But he was released from his imprisonment, him and Silas and Philippi, and they were able to continue their missionary work. But now, but now, after almost a, a decade later of gospel ministry, Paul finds himself under house arrest in Rome. In Rome itself. In connection again with his mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to plant churches for the glory of God. And while waiting for his trial before the powerful, powerful and pagan, Christ-rejecting Roman tribunal, Paul relays to the church in Philippi who were genuinely concerned for Paul and also, and also troubled, troubled not only by some conflicts within the church that we see hinted at in this letter, but also some opposition without. They're getting it both ways. They got trouble inside, they got trouble outside. So Paul relays to the church in Philippi, though, because he knows their concern for him, and he, he wants to speak to them, and he wants to address these matters, and he cares much about them, and they have been partners with him in this last 10 years in gospel ministry, and he planted the church. He, he's, his preaching is what got the church started, as God used that preaching to save souls and bring men and women unto himself. But here he, he relays to them that what has happened to him this Roman imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel there in Rome. <laughs> right? Guys, relax, you know? I know you're worried about me, but you know what? You know what? Right here, I'm, yes, I'm here. I'm imprisoned in the motherland, Rome, the Roman Empire itself. But you know what? All that has happened to me has really been used by God to advance the gospel to a greater degree here in the pagan empire. I love Paul. And he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing in Christ being proclaimed even more as a result of his imprisonment. He's rejoicing. Because, remember, for to him to live is Christ. He's rejoicing. As long as Christ is being exalted, as long as Christ is being lifted up, he's rejoicing. As long as Christ is being honored, he's rejoicing. In addition, in addition, Paul looks ahead. He looks ahead to his upcoming trial, and he says that he will rejoice. I am rejoicing, and I will rejoice. Why, Paul? Because no matter what happens, whether he lives or is made to die, whether he is released or executed by Rome, he is confident, he is confident that through the prayers of the Philippians on his behalf and the mighty help and power of the Holy Spirit, he is confident he will as always, be able to honor his precious, glorious, almighty, all-together worthy Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And then Paul makes that most, I'm taking you through the, the letter to catch you up to where we are. And then Paul makes that most powerful statement. For to me to live is Christ. And to die, if it goes down like that, gain. Following that statement, Paul goes on to ponder, reflect on each possible outcome, live or die. If he does go on living, if he is released, well, it will mean for him more fruitful labor, he says. More good work that he can do on this earth for the cause and the glory and the honor of Jesus, the Lord. However, if he is made to die, well, that is by far the best for him. For to die is gain because to live is Christ. It would be the achievement of the goal of his life. And while he desires with all of his heart to be fully with his Lord, to, to see his glorious face. You desire that, beloved? To have unhindered fellowship with the one that he truly lives and longs for. Well, that is his desire. He's convinced that God has more gospel good for him to do on the earth. And so expects he will remain and continue in order to, among other things, be a blessing to the church in Philippi, to continue to strengthen them and encourage them and instruct them in the gospel. And so he hopes and even plans to visit again as we see at the end of 126, especially, especially in light of the various struggles he has heard that they are having. For they are a church under fire. With that, let's read our text. Beginning in verse 27. Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also Suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, let's dive in. Verse 27. Only let your, only let your. Beloved, who is he speaking to? Huh? Believers, but specifically, a little more. Yes, the Philippians, the Philippian believers. Church. Someone said the church. Well, by extension, it's certainly we can include ourselves as part of the church, but, but let's not miss it. He's speaking to a local church. I just want you to understand, you're not speaking to an individual, okay? And it's important. Let your, okay? So collectively, you, local church there in Philippi, together, this won't make any sense if we don't catch that, if we think he's just talking to individuals in their individual selves, we'll miss it. It's not, it's not primarily for or to the individual. The church is made up of individuals, but we have to not miss it. It's the church, the community of believers that he's addressing these things to. In fact, they won't make any sense. They won't make any sense if it's just to an individual that he's writing these things, as you will see. And I only say that because... There are folks who think that Christianity can be done outside of the church. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I believe in God. I don't go to church. What are you talking about? I don't know what I... You're confused. You don't go to... What do you mean you don't... And so, again, they think, but let me say it this way. I believe in God, but I'm not part of the church. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Then you can't even... Most of what's written, you can't even apply it to yourself. Because it's written to churches with the church in mind, as you will see, as you will see. So that's all I want to point out there. Written to the entire church. Remember, we know that because right in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, that's the your he's writing to now and says these things to and issues these imperatives that we're going to see here. The meaning of the first word only, only, right, is expressed in one paraphrase, and you can express it this way, it can be defined this way, is this. Just one thing. Just one thing, right? So he just got through telling them about his present circumstances. He just told them he believes he's going to and hopes to see them again. But in the meantime, just one thing. It's the thing. It's the important thing. Just one thing, church. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is an imperative. It is an authoritative command. It is the command. And I, the way I understand and read this section is that that command is then expanded upon and further explained in the verses that follow. In other words, everything that flows out after that is explaining or helping you understand what it is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ as a church. You with me? And in fact, I, I would agree with some who say all the way to chapter 2, verse 18 is included an explanation of what it is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ as a church. You with me? And it's not an option. It's an imperative. It's an authoritative command by Paul. 
Just one thing, the thing. So we just read it, and let me, at the front, summarize it. I thought that might be helpful. Let me summarize it in my own words, kind of, using the words of Paul as well. What we see it means in this section, that what it means to live in a manner of life or worthy of the gospel of Christ, live as, you know, worthy of the gospel of Christ as a church. What we see it means is being a church, listen, being a church, a church, a body of believers gathered together locally, a church. It is being a church that is all together united and steady in what matters most. The glory and advancement of their Savior, who is the head of the, finish it, church, Christ. And so, and so, that necessitates that they, the church, refrain, refrain from being sinfully divided or distracted or diverted. It requires that. But rather they are to be firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the advance of the gospel and not frightened in the face of any opposition, but instead unyielding and resolute in spreading both by word and deed the truth concerning Christ. The saving message concerning him. This is what the gospel calls the church to, beloved. This is what the gospel calls the church to. Believers of the gospel, this is what you're called to. This is behavior worthy of the gospel. The gospel calls the church to this and instructs and, and empowers us for this. However, the enemy of God, who's that? The great enemy of God, I should say, Satan. This fallen world, in rebellion to its creator, God, and, and probably our biggest problem, the indwelling sin that still remains with us, do you know what I'm talking about? Together, that unholy trinity relentlessly work against the most glorious purpose of the church. And the Apostle Paul, the one who genuinely says, genuinely, for, to me, to live as Christ, well, he desired nothing less for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. For Christ, beloved, is indeed worthy of us living our lives, all of our lives, every aspect of our life, for him. 
and my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you can't wholeheartedly agree with and affirm that, what I just said right now, that Christ is indeed worthy of these things, if you can't, then my word to you is the same word I speak to myself <laughs> when I go off the rails. What word is that? The word is this. I need to think on him. I need to think on who he, Christ, really is. And I need to think on who I really am and think on what he has done for me and is planning for me. And has promised to me. Even in light of who I really am. And to put it more simply, I need to think hard, meditate on the gospel. Are you doing that, beloved? You can't do that and walk away thinking Christ isn't worthy of everything, of all of your life. You can't. The only way you get to that place is you've walked away from the gospel in one way or another. And so, Paul is hoping to hear, either in person or by way of another, if he is delayed in coming to see them, because he... He's very, you know, he's certain that he's going to live, but it may, he doesn't know how long it'll take, and it could go the other way. But he is hoping to hear, either in person or by way of another, if he is delayed, that in spite of their troubles, the, the church's troubles, within and without, he wants to hear, he's hoping to hear that the church is, Paul says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as I said before, you have to, you know, as you read that, you have to, and this is why it's so helpful to read the entire letter through as we work through each part, to already have that in your mind. There is a note in the letter of eternal struggles. We see something going on, tensions. The letter points to these things. He doesn't come out right out and say it other than we know there's some disunity between two ladies in the church, but there are other things that he's stating that indicate to us that all is not well in Philippi with the church. For that matter, all is not well in Philippi because those outside of the church are opposing them and pushing back. One author says, although he does not explicitly say so in this letter, several verses imply, several sections, that there are some internal tensions among them, such as bickering, selfish ambitions, empty conceit, complaining, arguing. Mm. A church? Yeah, yeah. Remember what I said about the enemies and the worst one, our own remaining and dwelling sin? At the same time, he says, there are some external pressures being applied 
which bid fair to make their situation as God's people in Philippi tenuous or weak or shaky. Paul's ultimate concern for them is directly related to his concern for the gospel in Philippi. That's what it's related to. Of course, he loves them and he cares about them, but what is most important is that their gospel witness continues to go forth strong and mightily. But if they begin to fall apart internally, if they're not united as they need to be, in addition to the opposition pressing in on them, they won't make it. Or, to one degree or another, their witness will be diminished there in Philippi, their witness to Christ. The advancement of the gospel will not go forth as it did or as it could. Does that make sense? Do you understand that? You see Paul's concern? Is that your concern? For Summit? For any other good church in this area? You know? As we think through these things. One writer adds, the Philippians are apparently being sorely tested, but they do not have their act fully together. It's just, you know, it's like anything, beloved. Think about it. Right? If you if your home life is good, solid, you got a a united front in the home, uh, then as opposition from outside of some sort, again, I'm not talking about gospel opposition per se, but just things, you know, pressures of life come on you. Are you not able to uh, withstand those better? Uh, Press through, persevere. The opposite, though. If the home life is conflicted and in trouble, there's disunity, their selfish ambition. And then you add to that the pressures from the outside. That's a, that's a dangerous situation. That's the same for the church. Of course, the church is made up of a bunch of homes. <laughs> so this has application. I mean, the church is only really as healthy as the homes that make it up. people so if if we care about the things that god cares about then we must act accordingly we must give ourselves to the things that matter most do you understand what i'm saying i have five minutes All right, I'll just, we'll do this, and then I'll come back, and what I'll do is I'll add some more. I'll add some more. I'm going to do a little bit here for you. Um, sorry. I'll add some more, and then we'll come back, and we'll finish up next time, okay? That's what we'll do. Is that okay, Thomas? Can I do that? Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. He keeps me in check.
I need it. So a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I said, and so when you read the letter, okay, when you read the letter, this will be, be good. Because uh, if you haven't read it, you're going to read it this week, right? Fantastic. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm really excited. This is going to help us all. Gosh, we all, need, we all need to be informed by the word of God, every single one of us on a regular basis. And if you've already read it, you might even consider reading it again this week, right? I hope you would. I hope you would. When you read it, um, read it as I, I suggested to you. When you get to this statement, a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ, everything that flows out of that all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. Write it down, write it down. Or if you've got a great memory, that's fine. Chapter 2, verse 18. Read it in light of that. This is what it looks like for a church to live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ that they say they believe in has rescued them. This is what it looks like. All the way to 218, okay? And then maybe that, I hope, it just, it just connects. If things start to connect together. And... Okay, so we'll do the first. A manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ includes standing firm in one spirit. And this is good. Then I can come back and pick up from there. Standing firm in one spirit. So let me just say this, and uh, get this out of the way. You'll notice in your ASV, and for that matter, NIV, NASB, NLT, King James, New King James. I don't know. I, it'd be interesting. I'd be curious to see if one of you have a translation that has the spirit capitalized. Standing firm in one spirit. You probably, you probably all have small s, right? Okay. So let me say that spirit... Uh, right before he uses the word spirit here, just a few verses before, and a few verses after in chapter 2, he uses the word again. But you'll also notice in your translations that there it's capitalized. Same word. Same word. And so you may know this already, and that's okay. I just want to point it out. Uh, spirit, that word, can be understood uh, in different ways. And, you, and basically the way you try to figure out, what is he talking about? Is it small s or is it big s? And if it's big s, it would be referring to the, what do you think? Holy Spirit, exactly. The Spirit, right? So uh, context. It, you have to, what is the writer trying to communicate in using this word? Well, how do I know that? Well, you read. You read the section before and you try to figure out what kind of argument he's making. And so you try to determine the translators, the ones who take from the original languages and put it into English for us, they have to make these decisions. But and the reason they do is because it's not cap, there's no, they don't have capitals in the Greek. Wouldn't that be cool? Because then we would just know. It was like, oh, well, of course, he's referring to the spirit. It's cap, like Paul capitalized it. No, we don't know. It's just the Greek word, spirit. So we have to figure out for our, you know, which is it, right? So spirit can refer to the Holy Spirit, uh, as you'll see it in verse 19 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. And there, when it does, it's capital S. It can also refer to evil spirits. It's used to refer to evil spirits. It's used to refer to the human spirit or soul. Okay? Or it can even be used to refer to one's way of thinking, like a, like a spirit, like an attitude or the, a disposition. You see that in Galatians 6.1 where it talks about restore that brother who is sinning in a spirit spirit of gentleness. You know, so we might, we use the word kind of that way sometimes. We say, oh, they have a 
a kind spirit. But we might say something else. We might say a kind heart, a kind soul. Kind of the same idea, right? Uh, so it's there. it could be used in a way of thinking, attitude, or disposition. And, and there are some good, good Bible scholars that argue that spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit. And they make their arguments, and I'm not going to uh, make them for them. I'm just going to say they make them, and they're, they're good. They're good arguments. I could go either way. I could go either way, uh, whether it's the Holy Spirit that the church is to stand firm in, in this one spirit, that being the Holy Spirit, or it's more of a disposition, an attitude. Um, I could go either way, but looking at other good Bible commentators and the good English translations I use, which I refer to eight of them each time I do a sermon, eight English translations, and none of them capitalize it, and they, when they make the translations, they themselves are Greek scholars. And, but again, I lean toward it not being a reference to the Holy Spirit, just based on all that. And, and, and here's a good side note for you. It might be helpful, a side note. When you're working through Bible interpretation, just understand there are situations like that. They come up almost, man, a lot, don't they, Thomas? And we have to, as proclaimers of his word, we're not just accepting what's there. We're looking, we're studying the words underneath. We're looking at it. We're looking at scholars and what they say. And, and so... But here's the thing about uh, Bible interpretation, right? If I came away from this, so I gave you two options, possible options. It is the Holy Spirit or it's a disposition. It's an attitude, which I think is what it is. If I came away with something that, um, an understanding of what that means, that contradicted another very clear piece of what is taught in Scripture, then for sure that's wrong, okay? For sure that's wrong. But sometimes there are, choices, there's some options of how one might translate a passage. Um, and either way, it wouldn't hurt us, right? Because it's consistent with what we see. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It does matter. And so sometimes we lean, sometimes we're very sure, but it, it wouldn't hurt us. It wouldn't, it wouldn't upset our spirit or God to go either way in this case. If I said to stand firm in the one Holy Spirit, that's a truth that we see. In other words, we're united in the Spirit. That's a truth that we see taught other places clearly in the Bible. If I also say it's a matter of disposition or attitude, uh, that also is something that we can see taught clearly in the Bible, to be united in, and, and with this one soul, one mind, one spirit, one mind type of approach. So, as one writer says, it is possible to regard Spirit as a reference to the Holy Spirit, but... He sees, he says, the explanatory phrase, because he sees it that way, which is the phrase that follows standing firm in one spirit, which is with one mind. So understand that he sees it as an explanatory phrase, but it, maybe it's a phrase that's standing on its own, because the other one is referring to the Holy Spirit, and now Paul is picking up a different thought. It's hard to make these determinations, but I see it as an explanatory phrase, and he says, because of that, it strongly suggests that both both these phrases, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, are descriptions of Christian unity of thought and action, similar, not the same, but similar to the expression in Acts 4.32, speaking of the church that says, in the early days of the church, that they were of one heart and of one soul. Similar because the word heart there is not spirit. It is a different word, but the same thought, same idea. And he goes on to say, of course, true unity must be produced by the Holy Spirit. Of course, it must be produced by the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't manufacture unity. 
We are to protect and guard the unity that the Spirit provides. But we don't manufacture the unity. We are united in Christ through the Spirit and united in purpose through Him, and we must protect that because there's so many things working against that. The devil, the world, our indwelling sin. And in the case of Philippi, that's exactly what was going on. Pressures from the outside, okay, where they really, it's going to be very important that they remain steadfast and united in the cause of Christ. And yet, at the same time, that's being diminished in some way or attacked because of eternal conflicts within the body. Selfish ambition, conceit. You see? So, of course, true unity must be produced by the Holy Spirit. However, the source here is not what is stressed, but rather the result. So, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, I'll leave you with this, and then we'll get to striving side by side, because that, uh, you can't do that by yourself. As you'll see, this is written to a church with the church in mind, and I have so, I have more that I'll bring into it that I cut out before, because I'll have more time next time. And it's very powerful, striving side by side. What are, what's going on there? Wow. And what, is, what, what, does, what does that imply in, in all the ways that we can think about that? But the idea of standing firm in one spirit with one mind is basically there's a unified front. There's a unified front. They are united in their thoughts and in their actions in regard to the most important thing for the church to advance the cause of Christ to make him known, to lift him up, to exalt him. Both by proclaiming him with words and by living lives transformed by him. Being transformed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at this text, and uh, we are grateful for it, grateful that you sovereignly chose to include it and preserve it for your people. Paul writes to your people in a specific context, in a specific setting. He gives them instructions to them, but we know that it has been included so that we too could benefit and learn and be challenged and confronted and guided as a church by this very letter. And so, God, I pray that you do, I trust you are doing, and I pray and ask that you continue to do a good work in this little body here, Summit Bible Church. May we adjust ourselves in any way that needs to be adjusted as we come under your word found in this letter. Our hearts, our minds, may we repent of anything that doesn't belong there and embrace all that does according to your word. Why? For your glory. For your glory, God. And Father, even in that situation, where uh, there's a dear brother and sister here maybe who doesn't care so much about your glory, I pray that you would do a special work in their heart. May they embrace the gospel. May they this week go back to the gospel. May they make it their daily food. And by doing so, may they fall again in love 
their Savior. May they again be in awe of Him. May they again remember that He is worthy. He's worthy of any sacrifice, any trouble, any embarrassment that we might have to feel. He is worthy. He is worthy of all effort that we can give to it. To make him known better. And to live consistently as your people with your word. As we find it here. I ask your blessing. Not only on our church, but on all the churches that are yours, God, on this earth. Help us all. We need it. And we're grateful for your help, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.